0: Hello, wonderful people, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 70, and it's part number 11, uh, the final installment of our series called Setting the Bible Free. And today we're sitting down with a brand new up-and-coming author. His name is Matthew Cortman, and he has a book coming out in about two weeks from now, uh, December 13th, this book will launch. Uh, You can go everywhere you get your books uh, to get it. Uh, It is called Saying No to God, subtitled A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. And I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of this book. And let me tell you, this book is a game changer uh, for how you think about God and your relationship with Him. So go do yourself a favor Go get this book when it comes out. It's not like a hard read. I mean, this is a really smart guy, and he made this book very readable. So anybody can pick it up wherever you are in your faith. You could pick this up, you can read it, and you will have a very good idea of what's going on. So do yourself a favor, December 13th, go get the book. Uh, Before we jump into the the episode, uh, a couple things. Number one— Uh, Like I said, this is the last week of our series, Setting the Bible Free. Next week, we start a three-part Christmas series called Keep Christ in Christian. I hate the phrase, keep Christ in Christmas, and I will tell you why next week. Uh, But we're going to do a a series where, instead of focusing on how do we keep Christ in the Christmas season, right? uh, what does it look like to keep the way of Christ— at the forefront of our mind uh, in our everyday lives in Christmas and beyond. So that's kind of the the, the idea of the series. The first two weeks will be uh, solo episodes, almost like mini sermons, I guess you can say. And I've been working on these episodes for a while, and I've gathered some really good information, and I'm really excited to share it with you. So I have all of my information uh, kind of down Now I just need to record the episode, and I'm really pumped to share this stuff with you. Uh, I think it's really going to encourage you and challenge you uh, and inspire you. So drop by here next Monday. We will kick off that series, Keep Christ in Christian. Uh, The third episode, just to give you a peek behind the curtain, uh, we will be bringing on the one and only Alexander John Shia uh, to talk to us about christmas and this guy he's actually been working on a book about christmas so he he's got a wealth of knowledge uh about the background of christmas the history of christmas uh and it's it's gonna it's going to blow your mind so be sure to stop back for that one as well that'll be uh the week of christmas we'll drop that episode and uh, i'm excited to share that with you uh as well uh what if project is on patreon patreon.com slash what if project so If this podcast challenges you, encourages you, uh, has made you stronger or think differently in your faith, consider supporting the show. There are different tiers of giving, everywhere from $3 a month up to $30 a month, and every tier gets its own uh, reward. So, whether it's a a bonus podcast episode, uh, a weekly blog post, a book I send you in the mail, everybody gets something. Uh, so think about supporting the show, patreon.com slash what if project. And uh, lastly, we have an online Facebook group, uh, which is really wild, wild stuff in there. It's a closed Facebook group. So not like just anybody can go in there. Uh, there's about 130 ish people. And uh, we're all in there different walks of life, different stages in our faith. Uh, Some people have been hanging out with Christ for a long time. Some people are new to their faith. Uh, Some people are feeling like they're leaving the faith, but everybody's in there sharing their journey and encouraging and cheering one another on. So head over there, check it out. The link to that and Patreon will be in the show notes as well. Uh, We would love to see you in that group and love for you to participate in the great conversations uh, that we have. But all of that to say, uh, again, this is episode number 70, my conversation with Matthew Kortman. Uh, His book is called Saying No to God. It releases on December 13th. So go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, go to Books A Million, wherever it is that you get your books, and pick up this book, uh, Saying No to God by Matthew Cortman, December 13th. Here is our conversation. Roll the tape. Enjoy.
1: everybody, welcome back to the What If Project Podcast. Uh, My name is Glenn, and today we are joined by a brand new uh, up-and-coming author. He's a master student at Yale who has been a very encouraging voice in my own uh, spiritual journey, and I want to introduce you to the amazing Matthew Cortman. So Matthew, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you here.
2: Thank you so much, Glenn. It is my deepest honor to be a guest on your show, honestly.
1: Absolutely. So Matthew has a new book coming out and it is called uh, saying no to God, a radical approach to reading the Bible faithfully, where he talks about how God and the Bible invite us to uh, argue with him and uh, in a sense, say no to him. And I was able to get a pre-released bonus PDF copy of this and it is awesome. So I must read for sure. Uh, But before we get into all of that uh, in a moment, Matthew, I was wondering if you could take a few moments to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, who are you? What do you do? What's it like being a student at Yale? I imagine the wizards of Harry Potter flying around on books. Like, tell us everything that we need to know about about you.
2: Oh my goodness! Well, there's, there's. I mean, it depends on what you're interested in. You want to know? I just want
1: all of the details about you.
2: Wow. Okay. A privacy. Five alert. minutes um,
1: <laughs> Man,
2: this starts to feel as uh, as tense as when you write a Twitter bio and you're like, "Wait a minute." That's right. You got not enough characters. space. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it is honestly true. The Harry Potter spiff you just did there. Honestly, if you're at a Sterling Memorial Library, um, there are certain hallways there that honestly remind you of Hogwarts. Um, mm. And and. For that brief moment, then you make a left turn and suddenly, you know, you're in a science fiction movie. So um, it's limited. It's not quite as extensive of a Hogwarts feel as, uh, say, Oxford or some of those other schools um, that are much older have. But uh, there is a very beautiful aesthetic charm at Yale. Um, I enjoy it. The Divinity School, where I am, um, is located up a hill on Prospect Street. And um, it's kind of like Zion. It's a little city on the hill. It's, it's, it's out of the way from the rest of the uh, Yale campus. Um, and so it's actually much more peaceful. Yale's main campus is chaotic as anything, especially when kids get out of school. It's like crowds of people. It's like it becomes Shibuya in Tokyo. It's like a crossing. <laughs> Everyone's there and they're moving. Um, and God forbid that you have a car because you are going to be stuck there potentially. Mm. Um, but the the Divinity School is very peaceful, far out of the way. Um, I'm very lucky and honored to be there. I started my program a year ago. I'm doing um, research on Second Temple Judaism, and uh, which is, for those that don't know, basically the time period of the Bible between the end of a traditional Protestant canon of the Old Testament, so Chronicles, Malachi, and um, the beginning of the New Testament. It's that period that encompasses the Apocrypha and uh, some of the uh, pseudepigraphic. Uh, authored books such as the Book of Enoch or the Book of Jubilees. So, for some people, that'll be of interest, and it is to me. I've always been interested by both what's in the Bible and what didn't make it in the Bible. Yeah, for sure. I've always found that um, you you can equally learn a lot about the Bible both from what's in it and what's not in it, um, or what is in other people's Bibles. Because mm-hmm. something that I've always been interested in my research is how different communities of christians have different bibles Mm. and not everyone really realizes i know that's a tangent to this conversation but it is doesn't the eastern
1: orthodox bible have like tons of books in it 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 does in fact
2: lots of denominations have different books in it so Mm. like the the quickest outline is you've got roman catholics who have um about seven or so books more than uh protestants typically do and uh, eastern orthodox add on a couple more books to that Mm. and uh, russian orthodox add a couple more books to that and uh, georgia orthodox uh also have this many books and ethiopian orthodox christians have the largest canon of about 81 plus books Mm. um in total and uh syrian christians are unique in that they have fewer technically canonical books but they have the apocryphal books as well um they they one of their unique things is they have the book of second baruch which Mm -hmm. is only shared by the syrian christians not the other so right there and then you if someone's never heard this before they're like what the bible is different for different people but our bible is
1: the right one right
2: i'm not saying that (laughs) but um But it's certainly, what can be definitely said is, if you want a safe bet, the Protestant or, uh, or Jewish Old Testament uh, definitely is agreed on by everyone. Mm-hmm. There's like no Christian community that has a disagreement on any of the uh, books that are in the Protestant Old Testament. So sure. everyone shares that. It's just a question of, should the feast be bigger Mm. (laughs) or you know are we good with the staple so um as regarding that like you know thankfully people it's not what it doesn't have to be is this the right one or that's it's more like okay um as some of the early protestants would say these are the definites and then we've got all this yummy um extra stuff that we can taste and, and discover um there's a lot of tradition there. So I study that stuff. That's what kind of floats my boat. I get really interested in the history of Christianity and in reading these texts and discovering what interesting things they reveal, um, not not always about necessarily like inspiration or the mm-hmm. truth about God, um, but honestly about the culture of the time period of Jesus. And I know that we can, we can get to this um, A bit later in this program if we if we end up talking about you know certain issues that involve ancient views on say like hell and other things but you know a lot of these texts do in fact help us to see what different jewish groups believed back then so i love looking at that stuff and delving into it um and i've i've been on a journey probably what people would call a deconstructive journey for it's kind of crazy to think about but almost about 10 years now Hmm um kind of started when i was 18 and now i'm 28 and it's weird to look back and 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 realize you know the journey that it takes you on and the questions that you start with they don't necessarily disappear they just keep growing deeper and deeper and more nuanced um and i think that's true for most people and certainly um this book and you know my journey to yale is very much it started way back at graduation in high school, just asking those central questions Mm -hmm. that would otherwise be taboo for most people. But then it just leads you to keep going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. What Um, was the
1: first question that you remember that really you were like, Oh shoot. And that kind of started mm -hmm. it for you.
2: Well, I mean, you, you kind of have to know this as background, which is that um, I was, when I was a teenager early on, I was kind of a fundy in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I was... What's a fundy for
1: our, for our people that don't know?
2: A fundy is like a, a sort of funny way to refer to a fundamentalist, yep. uh, specifically of a Christian, usually variety. Yep. Um, my So I'm Seventh-day Adventist, which is not an evangelical group, hmm. even though it gets grouped in with them. We're distinctly not evangelical in the way that what is traditionally thought of as evangelical thought is, but there are um, sometimes a lot of Adventist ministers who get influenced by friendships with evangelicals and they end up teaching much of the same things, even if it's not officially church belief. Mm-hmm. So growing up, although no one in my church community or the ministers I'd listened to on TV televangelists who were Adventists um, were believers. I mean, they weren't teaching inerrancy. As a doctrine, hmm. because Seventh-day Adventists don't espouse inerrancy. It's it's uh, historically we've been against the the idea as it's usually detailed. Hmm. But um, a lot of the televangelists who were popular that I grew up listening to did assume it because of the friendships they had with evangelicals and i guess they just were convinced that that made sense so they never actually taught it but it was kind of like an assumed cultural understanding if not like it's without error explicitly you just kind of assume this is the word of god you know it it's not going to have mistakes in it you know kind of a naive naive assumptions that would come with certain claims Hmm. so Eventually I was so kind of into that, that funny enough, I actually stopped caring about the Bible Mm. and I kind of just became very bored with it. And I just looked at it like basic instructions before leaving earth. If, if I got the basic instructions, then I don't mind if I'm missing a story in numbers because I didn't need that to, you know, before I leave earth, right. It's in there for some reason, but it's not, it's not the basic stuff. Hmm. So uh, luckily, thankfully my mom raised me very much to, um, to focus on the heart of Christ and to understand, uh, God and relationship distinctly separate from dogma. Hmm. So even though the Bible was growing very boring, I remained very much, uh, a spiritual kind of person. So it wasn't a very connected spirituality. It wasn't rooted in very much except what I'd grown up with. But, uh, It was very helpful because when I went ahead and was graduating from high school, I happened to stumble on uh, Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. And um, that book, phenomenal book, um, that was the first time I ever learned that there was something called biblical scholarship. Hmm. Um, like before then I would have thought the televangelist was a Bible scholar, right. you know, like yeah. being a pastor is the top level. And I would have told you, oh, I guess if you're teaching religion, you know, at a university, I guess it's just cause you didn't have what it cut to be cut out to be, you know, a minister. You didn't have the speaking skill. It would have been a terrible, terrible <laughs> answer I gave back then. But, um, Erman's book completely smashed everything that I had assumed. And it was the first time I realized I didn't know where my Bible came from. I didn't know how it was made. I'd never yeah. thought to ask. Hmm. And because the people I was listening to didn't, they didn't actually, you know, lay out in such a way for me to even think to ask that question. It was sure. just, well, that's it came from God and it's been preserved and, you know, the rest is, you know, it's inconsequential. always been there. Yeah. It's, it, it's always <laughs> been there, like the universe. <laughs> right. Um, so I, when I got that book, that was my deconstruction in mm. a heartbeat because I knew at that moment that either the ministers I had grown up with had directly lied to their congregations or their audiences by, hiding this information or sharing things that were not correct that would have, you know, confirmed this, or they were just very, very ignorant about Hmm. what they were saying. And that helped me in the sense that I I was upset at the individuals for not telling me the facts, but I never confused that, that rage and deconstruction with like the content itself. So, for me, when I discovered that you know textual criticism, which is what erman 's book focuses on, this idea of how did the bible 's manuscripts get created and and who wrote what and why that didn 't you know freak me out personally. It excited me because yeah. I was bored with the Bible. it was just mm-hmm. basic instructions I passively receive, and then I, I wait to go suddenly, there was this this factor of me I actually played a role in interpretation. I needed to know. Uh, the manuscripts and figure out, like, there was a role for the reader in understanding and working with the text. And that Mm -hmm. basic principle is what then helped to later excite my interest in the question of inerrancy. Mm -hmm. So, which is what you were originally asking, but that background's helpful because I suddenly got excited in my deconstruction, which is, I don't think the typical experience... Yeah, I don't think most people get excited with deconstruction. They find it more traumatic or like very destabilizing. And for me, it was like I had blinders taken off and I was just excited I could see light. And so I jumped into the light, you know, Mm -hmm. let's see if it's a car. Let's see, you know, if it's the Bahamas, but either (laughs) way, I was excited to find out where that light was since I had been in darkness. And I assume that for early Christians, that probably is a good analogy
1: too. So it sounds like you've been on this, you've been on this journey now you said for about 10 years, is that right? Yeah. About 10 years. So in all of that, before we jump into your book, we have a lot of people who are listening to this who are just starting their journey. Like it's just starting to unravel. They're like, wait a minute, some things aren't lining up. This doesn't make sense to me. You know, is my whole faith falling apart, what is, what is one word of wisdom that you would share with somebody who's very early on in their journey, maybe like six months to a year into rethinking these things?
2: Two things probably instead of one, uh, the first would be hold on and, and trust. And then along with that, find a way to be at peace with the fact that you don't have all the answers now. Mm. And for me, those two things have really, truly helped. Mm. Because when you're deconstructing, it's very easy to make the mistake of assuming that your deconstruction is actually taking apart what your convictions originally were Mm. versus A lot of the fat that was surrounding your or hiding what your true convictions were so sometimes i'll like there's a bunch of things that now i know and understand that i had no idea in the first years of my deconstruction Mm -hmm. and my journey and when i was studying all of this biblical scholarship and looking at all the historical critical methods and understanding the history and things that some of your audience will already know about regarding multiple authorship, et cetera. That's just the, the icing on the cake. You know, it just gets worse and worse and worse. It can mm-hmm. it can look that way. But I never allowed myself to, to fall into the trap that a lot of people do, which is to immediately go, Oh no, if this is true, then that means it's all for nothing. Or yeah. if that's true that, and I just t- always took a step back and said, you know what? I can learn the stuff and place my worries to the side for now, and do my best to understand what I haven't yet, and then I will just trust that if there really is something to all this, if my, my convictions personally inside myself about faith, about what I've experienced, about what I believe is my relationship with the divine, I will allow a middle ground to be there. Hmm. peacefully to just trust that if i give time it won't look as dire as it currently does yeah. and i might see something that i've missed before hmm. and the biggest thing that i i liked so much about what bart ehrman's book said is he, you know he was in, for those that don't know he was uh, he is an agnostic um bible scholar who's hmm. very brilliant um And he wrote a darn good book, um, great introduction to textual criticism. Uh, But what he emphasized so much was that in his journey, which although led him to agnosticism, he valued so much truth. He valued to say, well, whatever the truth is, you know, when he was a Christian, he was thinking, well, wherever the truth is, that's where God would want me to go. That's where Mm -hmm. I should be going. And I valued that thought very much. And it's what's continued to drive me always forward is to know that, look, if I really do believe in God and I believe if I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ and I'm deconstructing, I need to realize I'm deconstructing falsehood. And that Mm. means that I am, I am doing what, if I believe there's a God, I'm going the direction I'm supposed to. And Mm. so I need to give myself room to detox and to realize that what I am trying to seek might not, you know, it, it might not immediately be clear. It might not make sense. I mean, Paul, you know, when he was blinded um, on the the road to Damascus, it says he he says he took three years wandering the desert hmm. before he he was ready to go ahead and try to even speak about what had happened to him. And you know, I mean, that's important. Like, you know, he didn't just suddenly realize, oh yeah, I just deconstructed my entire <laughs> right. you know views and yeah. my whole life, and I'm ready to go preach about you know what Jesus really is Hmm. no the fundamentally most Christian foundational figure in the New Testament uh, one of the earliest writers period that we have he was just completely wiped out by the experience of having his previous worldview destroyed. And that took him years before he was able to get uh, to a point where he could start writing and we could start disagreeing with him later. So, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, if you're deconstructing, you've got to give yourself space to realize that there is room for you to not have to jump or make a, a decision or say, oh, this is my opinion on this now. It's like, look, if you realize how easily you got trapped in a falsehood, take your time building a new foundation. Yeah. Don't allow yourself to fall into the same old traps that end up weakening your resolve or weakening your, your trust. Believe that if God guided your deconstruction and you believe that God is calling you out from the falsehood that you, that you were previously in, that there is a road going forward. But like Paul, you're going to wander in the desert for quite a bit before you yeah. start to figure it out.
1: I think that's beautiful because a lot of times, and I know for myself too, it, it can become very frustrating when, you know, in your, in your previous, like you said, fundamentalist days, like you you knew for certain so many things. And now there's this sense of uncertainty. There's a sense of ambiguity and you feel like your grip is loosening on things. So you get impatient with yourself. You get impatient with the process like you want have the answers just like you used to have the answers but to your point you know it's a it's a journey it's not something that happens overnight so I think that's that's really helpful to hear
2: yeah no and it's really important too because it's funny that we felt like we were certain and yet what it really was it was an illusion of certainty and the truth is is that the the call of desiring knowledge is how we gain it Mm. It's how we find the truth is by constantly seeking it and desiring it and searching for it. Uh, The problem why so many people who, you know, are in these communities and still look the same 20 years later, theologically, they're not seeking anything because they feel that they're content, that they have Mm. the answers. And there is a psychological benefit to it in the sense of it makes the pleasure principle feel really good to you. You know, Mm. you, you, you feel secure. On the other hand, you don't grow. So it's really like a drug, it, you know. So it's something that's actually quite unbeneficial to you, you yeah. know. So on one hand, you feel good. On the other hand, you're not actually good. Right. So, you know, the illusion, it's, it's a deception. You know, if you grew up in a, in a conservative background with, you know, the talk about Satan and the devil, that's a really good, you know, way of thinking about it. You know, yeah. fundamentalism creates the illusion the satanic illusion that you are okay and that you don't have to struggle or keep growing, mm-hmm. and so in a sense it it kind of closes you off to listening to where the Holy Spirit's calling you, mm-hmm. so it feels great, but you know, as we were often told growing up what what feels good and looks good isn't always necessarily good for you absolutely
1: uh so let's jump into your book a little bit um and before we get to like too far into it. I like to ask authors this question. If you had to summarize your book in like two minutes or less, you had to like elevate or pitch this thing to somebody. Tell us what it is and uh, what it's about and why we should buy it.
2: Well, I'd say that uh, too often people have seen and heard bumper stickers either on cars or on people's lips that tell you, well, if God said it, uh, you know, then I believe it. And that's enough for me. You know, that does it. And uh, the truth of the matter is, the Bible actually suggests, or not even suggests, explicitly states uh, or demonstrates the opposite. That mm-hmm. in fact, uh, God, just because God says it, does not actually mean that that settles it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, may not even mean that God wants it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, while it can sound like an utterly strange and foreign thought, is actually a crucially central idea to scripture and is throughout both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, both uh, Yahweh and Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the fact that uh, it is so often missed and so often not talked about uh, is even more shocking when one realizes that in fact, this knowledge has been uh, explored and discussed many times by some of the most famous people Martin Luther, John Calvin, Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Paul Tillich, Soren Kierkegaard. I I tell you, these people have written on the fact that the Bible, in fact, reveals these things and states these things. And yet, it is still one of the least known, least talked about ideas of the Bible that virtually no one knows. Mm. But people who have throughout history delved deep into scripture have seen these troubling and exciting aspects of the Bible. And uh, my book is really focused on just delving into that and saying, let's stop putting this on the side. Let's throw the spotlight on it and let's see if this changes the whole dynamics of how we talk about inspiration and inerrancy.
1: So it sounds to me like this this book is coming from a very, uh, very personal place. And so I'm wondering, as I was reading the book, I was wondering... Um, what does it look like for you or what has it looked like for you, especially over these last 10 years to kind of apply the the concept of this book to your life? Like, what does it look like for you, uh, Matthew to say no to God?
2: Well, I think one of the earliest things that I struggled with, uh, which is a central part of the book really, truly is divine violence. Mm. Um, when you read the stories in Joshua and you're not blinded by, you know, your own conceited self-interest in the story of Israel and you kind of start to feel bad for the Canaanites or you feel bad for descriptions of, you know, pregnant women being slaughtered or children being killed because their grandfather supposedly did something and now God is angry because of what they did. And at some point your morality starts to kick in and you start to feel a like, eh, this is not very comfortable. Yeah. Um, and it bothers you because, yeah, there's the parts of scripture the church usually reads. And those parts always make you feel warm and fuzzy. And then there's, mm. you know, the other passages about I'll bash their, you know, I'll bash them one against the other. And you start to go, hmm, you know, especially if you're in a high church function where, you know, the scripture is read and you say, thanks be to God for this word." You know, if you if you had to read those texts, you yeah. might not be you might well, not. I don't know if I'm very speak. thankful for that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you might you question like, well, yeah. what is that supposed to do? And funny enough, of course, the lectionaries usually lead those passages off because True. they don't expect that their audiences are gonna want to say that to those right. texts. Yeah, but it does beg the question. Okay, well, if I'm not saying I'm thankful to God in church for that text, then am I saying it in private at home? And if I'm not saying it in private at home, what do I do with it? And so one of the things I really struggled with is how do I make sense of a God in the Hebrew Bible uh, that seems so absolutely violent at times and so contrary to the image of God displayed by Jesus Christ in the Gospels? Mm. And that's a, a, obviously a fundamental problem for for Christians, especially many today who uh, desire deeply to embrace the truth that Jesus says, you know, that I'm revealed throughout the scriptures. Okay. But then you find those texts and you're left with a proposition. Hmm. Do I subordinate these to something else or do I take them all equally and and I have to assume that, you know, Jesus is like a as John Dominic Crossan says in one of his books, it's kind of like a cocktail, you know, one part violent, one part good and you just kind of mix it together and find out what what the flavor is for right. that day. True. Um And the problem is, is that uh, ultimately I just could not bring myself at some point, you know, very, I mean, I couldn't do it even before, but really during my deconstruction for, you know, the first five years, I just could not bring myself to say, yeah, I'm willing to say that, uh, that God's doing these things. Mm -hmm. You know, God is, God is behind us. And to somebody listening, you know, they might think, wow, that's, that's, you know, very, um, Conceited of you as a human. You want to say you know what God can or cannot do. And, you know, in the Bible, um, one of the stories that I delve into, there's actually three stories I, I, I centrally delve into, which is mm-hmm. the story of Moses, Abraham, and Jacob. Uh, Jacob wrestling at the Jabbok River with God, Moses telling God he's evil if he does something God just said he wanted to do, and and a story of Abraham who, who tells God that he isn't really God if he does something. Hmm. Um, now, in those three stories, Genesis 18, Genesis 32, and um, Exodus 32, you have this very interesting reality that helps to explain why I have a biblical reason for why I can question whether or not God can do something. Mm -hmm. And that is that when God comes to Moses in Exodus 32, he tells Moses, I have decided that because I see the Israelites creating a golden calf, I've decided it's all a mistake. I regret that I saved them. I regret the Exodus. Screw all that. I want to kill every last one of them right now. And I'm going to restart with you like Abraham or like uh, Noah. I'm just going to, restart a new nation from your own children you'll be the leader of everything um and this is he's like this is my will this is what i i will to do and moses does not respond as you would assume a, t- a typically theoretically correct approach to evangelicalism would tell you, which mm. is to say the will of God be done or quote Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. You know, like this idea of like, all right, well, if this is the divine will, then so be it, right? And that's that's the true, that's the true evangelical approach by mm. many people because they look at scripture and they tell you, well, if God decided to do it, to those Canaanites he had every right. Okay. Well then in this story in Exodus 32, God has every right to do it to the Israelites. You know, if that's the if that's the theory, then God is not restrained by anything. Hmm. And yet that's not what happens in Exodus 32. We actually have Moses turn to God and say, "If you do this, everyone in the world is going to think that you're evil. And yeah. everyone's going to call you a murderer." And you will have broken your promises that you made before. You cannot do this. Hmm. And the writer of, um, of the story even describes, you know, what God was thinking of doing as evil, as, as, as something that was an evil intent to, to do violence. And it says, and God changed his mind.
1: Hmm.
2: Now that text, that part of the text is constantly troubling to individuals in apologetics. Well, yeah. why is God going ahead and, uh, and changing his mind? That's not the really interesting part of the story. And it's remarkable that we don't concentrate on what is interesting. Why does a human being think it can tell God no? Yeah, Right now, now the audience here on the podcast might be picking up on what my book's title is really getting at. Yeah. How can Moses tell God no? How can he dare to tell God what you're about to do is evil, right? Already off the bat, you can tell that Moses does not think that whatever God says is automatically good. He does not believe in divine command theory. He is working on an assumption that there is morality which he has access to and which he can uh, argue with God over. Hmm. Now, given that, it begs an interesting question regarding, all right, And we see this also, again, like not to go too long in a program, but like Abraham does very much a similar thing with Sodom and Gomorrah um, when he turns to God and he says, you know, uh, will not the judge of all the earth do justly? Uh, That's a really important text because if you look at Psalm 82, there's actually a definition of what being a God is. It's given, it's one of the only job definitions for divinity. And it says that the definition of being a God is that you give justice to to the people. If you don't give justice, that it's a death sentence for you. You're not a God anymore. Hmm. That's one of the fascinating passages, Psalm 82. So it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that an Israelite reading the exchange between Abraham and God, that they're able to interpret that when Abraham says to God, will not the judge of all the earth do justly, he's invoking this cultural assumption of justice and divinity, and basically calling God out saying, if you don't do what is just, and I currently don't think you might be doing it, then you're maybe not the right God for me. Hmm. And it makes sense given Abraham's story of how he didn't, you know, he never had a Mount Sinai moment. He learns God step-by-step over time. So it makes sense. Like God can do something that, that loses trust with Abraham and, In this story, Abraham does not treat, like Moses, Abraham does not treat God as some special object, which he cannot defy or question or push back on. Instead, he gets right into the thick of an argument with him. Mm. And it gets even more real when you're looking at the story of Jacob, because there you have really this penultimate story in which God is wrestling with a human being and looks, I mean, the text, the way it reads, it's, you know, this is a fight to the death. Mm. Um, you know, and even, even uh, Martin Luther, when he read the text, understood that, that this was the sense of the text. This isn't just a WWE wrestling match. <laughs> this is a real, this is a real deadly fight. Yeah. And the fascinating aspect of it, of course, is that Jacob is the winner. And unfortunately, when you look at artwork, they usually present the artwork of having the angel or the God looking like he is, has the upper hand and like Jacob's just trying to hold on. That's not what the text says. The text says it's the angel or God who's barely holding on. Mm-hmm. And Jacob's the one who won't let go. And he's controlling the fight, even when his thigh or his private parts, because it could be either one, are, are hit. Um, in that story is kind of like a cheap move by the <laughs> divine being to 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 make sure that he can get away. Uh, Jacob still is the upper hand the whole mm. time. And so what's fascinating is that at the end of that story the man he's been wrestling with tells him you know your name will be Jacob no more it's going to be Israel because you have fought God and humans mm. and have won, have overcome, have defeated. And this is the Irony of all ironies, Israel's name means those who fight God, hmm. and at least in the terms of what Genesis thirty-two is, uh, understands the name to mean at that time, is that those these are those who fight God, and they fight God and win, because hmm. that's the context of Genesis thirty-two, and it's a blessing. So this isn't like oh they're going to be a, an obstinate people, they're going to go to idolatry, and no, no, like this is this is the purpose of Israel to hmm. fight God and defeat him. And yet, strangely, in defeating God, they will receive a blessing from God. Hmm. So see, there's this weird paradox here. Why is Jacob defeating God? Why is Moses and Abraham able to push against God? And this all kind of delves into the point of, well, why do I think that I can have problems with Joshua or look at stories and say, no, God isn't killing this many people. God is not behind these things because I have a moral objection to it. Mm. And if Moses and Abraham can have moral objections in the moment about something, I think I have and every other Christian have a fundamental right to Im- to emulate them and mm. have objections about what other human beings have said that God did about mm. these morally
1: objectionable things. Mm. So what would you say, let's say we talked about Abraham, we talked about uh, Moses, talked about Jacob. What would you say to the person who says, okay, but like, that's the old Testament. Let's talk about the new Testament and let's talk about somebody like doubting Thomas. Uh, Cause like for me, every single time I bring up like on the podcast, on Facebook, something like that, that I'm have these quote doubts about this doctrine that I was taught about since I was a kid, I'm almost always met with yeah, but Jesus rebuked Doubting Thomas. And I know you talk about this a little bit in your book, but you have a a really unique perspective on that story. So I'm wondering if you could maybe shift gears from the Old Testament into the New Testament a little bit.
2: Absolutely. I love both. So um, (laughs) Thomas is really an interesting fella because of the fact that when people talk about doubt and the disciples, his name is synonymous and he's also kind of the only one. It's kind of like lonely Thomas. He's the only doubter.
1: (laughs) He's the outcast.
2: (laughs) Um, And of course he's the only doubter in uh, the gospel of John that's mentioned, you know, in that scene in the upper room. Um, But there's something interesting about, and I didn't even mention this particular detail in the book itself. um, And that is that uh, Thomas not Thomas, the Gospel of John, it writes things in a very sort of pragmatic way. Whatever is the focus, that's where it is. Hmm. So for instance, in the Gospel of John, Mary's, as I recall, is the only woman who's said to have gone to the tomb, right? The story is Mary's there and Jesus meets her. As, right, there's no other women there with her. Right? Um, there's no, There's no narrative about this. Mary finds the tomb empty. Mary runs to tell them, Right, So Mary's given this prominence. But when Mary speaks, she says it in the plural, referencing other people. But those people aren't in the story. So there's a a principle here about John, which is that John does not always narrate everything that's true about the story. It's not like John's saying there was only Mary there. It's just Mary's the only one who's going to get mentioned because She is now typological. She's the individual who we're going to focus on as the key to the story. So in the same way, we should have our antennas up regarding Thomas, which is that, yeah, Thomas is the only one mentioned, but does that actually mean he was the only one who doubted? And Mm -hmm. the truth is, when we look at the other Gospels, much like when we look regarding the stories of how many women were at the tomb, we find out, actually a whole bunch of the disciples were doubting. Um, And so the first step is just to realize Thomas is not unique. Uh, In Matthew 28, um, you know, we have this description of the disciples uh, going to Galilee and they're on the mountain um, waiting for the ascension of Jesus to happen. And, you know, when they see Jesus, it says the 11 disciples worshipped him, but some doubted. Mm. That, like i mean that is just a fascinating like statement that never gets preached about a number of the disciples enough to warrant the word some doubted it wasn't and I, this is after the upper room right? mm. this is this is not even in there this is after you know the way they show it, it's like oh yeah once thomas touched jesus there was no doubt no i'm right. to matthew 28 <laughs> yeah up until the point that jesus is rising into the clouds guess what they're doubting him mm. that's incredible um, and yet what's also incredible about that story, uh, well, actually let me just save that for a moment. I'll, I'll mention it, but the, another text that's really important is in Luke, um, where in Luke's account, again, in the upper room, like, um, you know, where they're hiding out much like John, it mentions, um, that when Jesus turns to the disciples, he says, you know, why are you frightened and why does doubt arise in your hearts? Hmm right? This is really important. Jesus says that they're all doubting. Not, not just Thomas. It's not like, why are you individual Thomas? But why are you all frightened and having doubts come in your mind when you see me? So this is really important to realize, wait, all the disciples are in fact doubting. They're all guilty of it, even up until the point that they actually are watching Jesus ascend into heaven according to Matthew. And mm. what's really interesting about that though, which is so contrary to the way that we treat doubt and Thomas, is that in the Matthew story, Jesus is commissioning the disciples with their doubts. Mm. This is just like a just one of those golden nuggets in the gospels that when as the text says, when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted and Jesus came and said to them as they're doubting all authority has been given to me go and make disciples right this is fascinating because typically the sort of traditional narrative we're given is well yeah you are you know you are only going to go ahead and uh, be a useful servant for christ when you give up your doubts and your full of certainty and yet this is not what matthew 28 reveals instead The Gospel of Matthew reveals a Jesus who commissions people with their doubts to go out and make disciples of people even with their doubts. I mean, like, Mm. how's that going to work? But it doesn't matter because Jesus' blessing to them is not dependent on them having all their theological cubes in the right order. Mm. They are being invoked to a blessing and to bless other people, even when they themselves are wondering what it's all about. So how that reflects on Thomas really is simply to say that when you are looking at the story of Thomas, this is not so much a story of, you know, woe is Thomas who doubted, right? They all doubted. Thomas is just being given the poster child for John's oh, right. version. To kind of, sure. He's the symbolic whole of the disciples, which is kind mm. of honoring. Kind of shows Thomas, you know, is being given this honor of of uh, of being the symbol for all the disciples in this case. But you know, what was Jesus' words to Thomas in John 20? You know, it was have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Right? This is not saying your doubt's bad. This mm-hmm. is not rebuking Thomas's doubt. It's saying, Yeah, okay, uh, you were given an answer to your doubt, but there." are going to be other people who will have to live with it. Mm. They will be like the disciples in Matthew 28, but they may never end up finding that certainty. They're going to have to struggle, fight like Jacob with this doubt. And yet blessed are they because they still persist in their belief, right? This is not to say that doubt is not healthy, but what it really gets to the point of is that, you know, Thomas said, I will not believe unless I touch Jesus. Mm. Right. And if there's anything that Jesus could potentially be rebuking, it's simply us putting a necessity on certainty. Mm. Right? Which, man, this turns the whole story against the traditional Orthodox approach. This this is this is saying, you know what? If you demand that you must know for certain in order to believe, then guess what, apologetic? Guess what, conservative individual? Guess what? That you're the one at fault. Mm. Right? God is in the business of people being able to live with their doubts. If by chance you're given a miracle and you're allowed certainty with the truth, congratulations. But that's not a a prerequisite in order to believe that you have everything lined up for yourself. It's okay to be a doubting disciple on Ascension Day, watching Jesus rise and going, is it really happening? Hmm. You're still going to be commissioned by God to be a part of this big, amazing story i find that to be pretty powerful
1: i think it's a really cool statement that you said that jesus commissioned the disciples and their doubts because i think a lot of times i know for a lot of people like i'm friends with pastors who are in this you know journey of deconstruction some have left the their role as pastors and a lot of the people around them have told them like you know before you get back in front of people and lead them or teach them like you need to you know, kind of erase your doubts. You need to get your your mind back together so that you can, you know, lead with confidence and lead with certainty. You know, just I've heard that from a lot of people that like you need to you need to get your act together. You gotta get a grip on the truth again. And then you'll be ready to lead people. And I'm like, I really feel like God is doing something in me now. And I think that that's okay. So Yeah, and and yeah.
2: what he's doing in that moment is honestly so much more rich and powerful and a blessing. I mean, like, if we think about it, you know, Israel getting its very name and calling in Jacob's wrestling story, hello, that is not certainty. That was not, like, that was pretty chaotic and traumatic. And yet that was the central turning point of Israel's Mm. history. Like, what does that tell you, Mm. right? Like the nation of Israel was being threatened by God in Exodus 32 to be wiped out, right? This is a pivotal moment. And it's also the very moment in which God is really commissioning and revealing Moses to be who he is. In fact, like one of my uh, denominational leaders, uh, Ellen White, um, she commenting on this story, uh, Moses arguing with God, described it as a test. Had Moses said, all right, kill them all. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Your will be done. Right? He would have failed. He would Mm. have never been a prophet. He would have completely gone off the rails because he put his own prosperity ahead of morality. Mm. And for her interpretation of that story, it was, no, this was a test. Does Moses understand God's character? And is he going to, when confronted with a a bad portrait of God, does he know God well enough to reject the negative portrait and reaffirm the positive one? Mm. And I think, when we look at Jesus to talk about New Testament, right? We have to realize that when Jesus says again and again, if you've seen me, you see the father, we got to kind of take that seriously. And that means that we have to realize that if we're rejecting an image of God written down in the book of Deuteronomy, because we see, you know, that it totally is in non-alignment with Jesus, the answer is not necessarily to say, oh, well, that was one stage. Jesus is a different stage. No, it might mean that like Moses, we appeal to God in Jesus to, you know, fight against God, you know, in the Bible. Mm. And that sounds like a crazy idea, except it's biblical. Mm. That's the really crazy part.
1: That's really good. So Matthew, we are uh, nearing the end of our time and uh, I, have, I have more questions for you, um, but I want to bring you back on again for a part two. And uh, you told me earlier that you would be open to that. I want to talk to you about hell because I know you have some thoughts about that and that's a bigger topic. So I think maybe we'll devote like a whole episode to that. And then you also piqued my interest in the beginning when you talked about the formation of the Bible. I've gotten a lot of questions about that and I don't have very good answers. So I think I'm going to bring you on to talk about that um, as well because you sound a lot more knowledgeable there uh, than I ever will be. Oh, it's, it's, it's not as much stuff as you would imagine you'd need to
2: know. It just... It's just like a weird, like, you know, when you're in college and they they give you those worksheet with formulas and it's like, oh, there's not that many, but you know, it does take time to try and memorize them all, right? That's kind of like canon. It's it's like this big smorgasbord of a bunch of little details and facts that while individually are curious, all together add up to kind of like a stew that, you know, you'd rather just Eat, see the see the results of not necessarily have to to kind of wade through all the ingredients, but um, I would be happy, more than happy, overjoyed to to come back and uh, talk about that and and hell, which you know is not while it, it's not in itself a very enjoyable topic, uh, destroying it is. So, yes, um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen some of your stuff on Facebook about it. You talk about it in your book, so I think uh, I think it's going to help a lot of people because. Um, just as a plug for your book, uh, especially that part, the last part of your book, you talk a lot about kind of kind of applying um, this idea of saying no to God to uh, bigger theological topics. So you talk about like the ordination of women, homophobia, hell. So just for our listeners, like if you're struggling with those kinds of things, uh, Matthew's book is going to be a huge I think asset in your library uh, for that. So uh, where can people go to get your book when it does come out?
2: So people can go ahead and uh, I mean obviously the first place they can go to is Amazon it's where 70 plus percent of people buy their books today yeah. so i suspect that most of you listening are doing that but let's say <laughs> you're a little bit old school and you don't all right you can go to your Barnes and Noble Um, If they, you know, if they don't have it in stock, just you can ask them to order it, it will be they will have that they're available to order for you to come to the store. It will be at uh, a number of places where major books, you know, are sold, you'll be able to order it if it's not in stock. Uh, The funny thing about books when they're not necessarily huge, they're not always in stock, but Mm -hmm. you can always order them. Yeah. And it will be available as an ebook everywhere you know that ebooks are typically sold. Um, so you should be able to get it, uh, you know, for your Nook or for your Kindle or for your um, what is the other ones for the the Apple books?
1: IBooks. I should know that. Better.
2: IBooks. Anyway, I there should you know go. it. That's I. I, really I work for that. Apple,
1: so I should definitely know it, right? <laughs>
2: yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it'll be everywhere. Um, if this is the kind of uh, topic, uh, and I think it is, that is of interest to you. Um, it's hopefully going to be a book that really helps. I I will throw in the plug because I'm so excited about it that, um, I just say that the book has the endorsement of Peter Rollins, um, who believes that this book moves us past the conservative and progressive paradigms to something different, which Mm -hmm. is, I love Rollins' work and I reference him in the book a lot. And so I'm, I'm very, excited about that it's also being endorsed by brian mclaren and john shelby spong uh and uh, robin r myers and thomas j ord and uh jory micah and uh oh just uh just Donna a couple, of, just a couple just, of big names just, a, names just, in there. just just a bunch of really <laughs> awesome people who who write much better than I do, and for some reason um, they believe in the work too, and so I'm really excited about that. So if you like those people and you respect their opinions, um, it might it might help to to make this book uh, a little bit more attractive if it wasn't already. Hopefully, um, but yeah, I'm excited for this to come out, and I'm really excited most of all for the conversations that I hope this book is going to help to create that haven't been there before. Uh, and I guess if I can just throw this in here as almost like the golden nugget nugget, although maybe because I think it's golden, it's not, (laughs) um, you know, what good is inerrancy? I don't actually spell it out like this in my book, but it's really kind of like in your face. That's, that's the implication. What good is inerrancy if you can't necessarily, uh, come to agreement that what is inerrantly shown is right. Mm. So like we can say that Moses has an inerrant word of God given to him, but if he accepts that he fails, Yeah, right? And if Abraham can have an inerrant whatever, but if he doesn't push back, he fails. Jacob has a truly inerrant, you know, opponent coming at him. And if he doesn't defeat him, he is not actually winning faith. Mm. And so I think, you know, we're so often in our current debates thinking about, well, you know, is the Bible accurate or is it not? Well, guess what these stories show? That's not the right question. The Mm. right question is, what is the heart of God? If you don't know that, then knowing whether or not God said it isn't going to tell you whether God is truly that at all. Mm. So what I really hope is that this kind of discussion, this kind of book is going to fundamentally help uh, re-alter you know how we discuss these pivotal topics of inspiration and perhaps finally give us a middle ground where progressive, uh, progressives and uh, conservatives can come together and look at the sacred text in front of them as it really is and with the eyes that Israel was called to look at it with.
1: Mm. Well, on that golden nugget, uh, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to have you and uh, I will see you in the cyberspace world.
2: All right. Thank you so much. I really am excited uh, to come back again and uh, talk about all kinds of other uh, theologically nerdy stuff.
1: We'll get into trouble together.
2: <laughs> Definitely.
1: All right, man. You have a good one.
2: All right. You as well. Blessings.